I think it's interesting. We are pretty familiar, if you've been in the church for a long time, you are probably aware of the statistic of how many people walk away from the faith that they grew up in. Uh, Recent statistics which suggest suggest about 14% of those raised in Protestant households walk away from faith. Those about 13% in the Catholic faith as well. And what I don't think we consider is the number or the statistic of those who walk away from unbelief. I don't know if you have ever considered that statistic, but they say over 50% of those who were raised in staunch atheistic or agnostic homes, over 50% of those turn from their unbelief to belief. I don't know if you've ever considered that statistic. We're all in the church afraid of the statistic of those walking away from the faith, but there are people who walk away from unbelief. And over half of those who do turn to faith of some kind suggest that their needs, as much as we try to in this world, have them met, are not being satisfied. It's an interesting statistic to consider when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And if we're honest with ourselves, or even take a minute just to slow down, we'll start to recognize that there are unique needs that simply cannot be met with anything under the sun. C.S. Lewis put it this way, I have found a desire within myself that no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The book of Ecclesiastes unsettles us in this world. It makes us uncomfortable. It rattles the norm that we may have found ourselves being rocked to sleep in. And it prepares us to consider Lewis's world. Maybe this isn't all there is. Jesus came announcing this world, the kingdom. Jesus came announcing to the world why we felt we were not complete or satisfied by anything under the sun. Jesus came announcing that you and I would struggle while we're grabbing at vapors, as Solomon said. But he came to explain that God made us for him. Jesus came saying, we are actually what, he, he is what we are actually looking for. God made us for him and our hearts will remain restless until they come to rest in him. Walking in relationship with God is what we were made for, dependent on him, defined by him, directed by him. Chapters 5 and 6 of Ecclesiastes are incredibly relevant for us as the church today. We begin with the call to fear God. And I know we use that term and everybody's all like, I don't like that term because that's Old Testament. I like Jesus. Jesus is like my homeboy. I can walk up to him and, you know, we can hang out together and and he's my best friend and we can do all of these things just like that. But we are, we are introduced to this and, and reminded over and over and over in the wisdom books that there is no life lived right and, and, and fulfilling without the fear of God. Living in our own wisdom, in our own ideas, our own thoughts will never produce a meaningful life. The beautiful promise that comes with fearing God, and this is where I want you to lean in, the beautiful promise that comes with fearing God is that I don't have to fear anything else. 
the beautiful promise of living a life in, in the fear of God, the awe of God, is that there is nothing else in this world that I have to be afraid of. And fear marks us more often than not. That's why we hear over and over and over in the scripture, do not be afraid. God is not vapor. God's holiness in the scripture and today is not vapor. Everything that the teacher describes under the sun is meaningless and vapor, but we find out that he does not treat God as meaningless and vapor. We see a very different, different turn and response to the holiness of God. In between the bookends of, of fear God and fear God, that's really where chapter 5 and chapter 6 begin and end. Fear God, fear God. And in between, we see cheap words and we see money. Talk being cheap and money and work not being all that we thought was cracked up to be. So let's talk words, then we'll talk money, and then we'll talk Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It is evil to make mindless offerings to God... Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are here on earth, so let your words be few. Now, um, we all know the talkers. We all know the people who don't stop talking. We all know the people who pretend to be listening, but they're really talking in their head, not listening to you. Maybe you know this guy. Hey, Murph. <laughs> hey, Ronathan. I heard you're having trouble with your computer. Yeah, thanks for coming down. Okay, so what's, uh, what seems to be the problem? Uh, so every time I try to get online, uh -huh. it's asking me for an admin okay. password, sure. but it shouldn't need a password to get onto the internet, sure. and I should already yeah. have admin privileges on this computer. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Did you get all that? Yeah, yeah, totally. So... You need admin privileges? No, no, no. Yeah. I already have yeah. admin privileges. Oh, okay. I just Great. need to get on the internet. And okay, it, yeah. It, I shouldn't need admin privileges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. I feel like you're not actually uh -huh, listening uh -huh. to me. Yeah, yeah, sure. Are you yeah, actually okay. not listening to yeah, me? No, or are you saying that you okay, get sure. that it seems yeah, that totally. way? Totally, yeah. I, yeah, that's, that makes sense. Okay, you need to stop sure. that. Okay, doing what? You need to stop checking in okay, with me so right. much saying okay. yeah. You need to stop yeah. saying yeah. What do you mean? It seems like you're not listening oh, and then you're just focusing got on it. saying yeah, yeah and no, that got makes it sense. and everything. Yeah. Like you took yeah, some okay. kind of active oh, listening oh, sure, class, but yeah. you're not actually totally, paying attention. Totally. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Then why did you disagree mm -hmm. with me a million times mm -hmm. while I said it? Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm just showing you that I'm listening to you. Hey, heard you were having trouble. You're that guy who won't stop saying, yeah, Ronathan. Ronathan. Yeah, I was, but uh, I heard people hate that, so I am committed to being a better listener. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Okay, well, I think there's something wrong with... With your computer? No, my phone, actually. Oh. I just, I can't Can't update to the new OS, yeah. No, access... The internet. No, my e... Trade. Mail. Got it. E trade. Mail. Mail. Email. Email. Okay, yeah. the way you keep finishing my sentences is really... Really helpful, I know. Annoying. Yeah. Uh -huh. You keep guessing wrong. Just let me finish what I'm... Eating. Eating? Eating. Really? You thought I was going to say, say eating? eating? Yeah. Okay, yes, that time I was going to say eating, eating, but not the time... Of your life. No, I was saying not the time before that. 
None of your guesses make him an offer you can't refuse. Sense. Just shut up for one direction. (laughs) All right. Ecclesiastes 5 opens with the reality that talk is cheap. More honestly, the reality that we can't keep our promises. Making a vow to God, telling Him that we'll do something for Him when the emotion gets stirred right or we hear something and we're just like, all right, I'm turning my life around. God, I promise you. Oftentimes when we make vows to God in some way, we're trying to get something out of it, aren't we? When we make a promise. God, if you get me out of this, I swear I'll go live in a hut overseas and tell everyone about you, right? God, if you'll just let me win the lottery, I swear I will be so generous, right? Like You've said that. I know you have, because I've said it. I've said those things. God, if you'll get her to notice me, I swear I'll be the godliest leader ever. I will grow a beard and wear sandals and look like Jesus to her. Like, you've prayed those prayers, gentlemen, right? Moses, as he is unpacking for the people of Israel how to live before God, says these words in Deuteronomy chapter 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised him. For the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows, or you will be guilty of sin. However, it is not a sin to refrain from making a vow. But once you have voluntarily made a vow, be careful to fulfill your promise to the Lord your God. You heard it here. Stop making vows to God. That's it. Because we can't keep our promises. We don't keep our deals and we use hasty words. And that's a problem. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's like, look, when you walk into God's house, just listen to him. Be quiet. It's better when he speaks, not when you speak. You guys can't speak the words of life to each other like God can. So shh. Stop being hasty. It doesn't matter what you did last night and you're trying to make up for it with the Lord. All right, I'm going to make a promise to God. I promise. I never want to do that again, Lord. And if you keep me from that again, I will give my life to you. I mean, it's what we do. We make vows that are empty. And God's saying, look, just stop making vows to me. I didn't ask you to. Just stop. Jesus actually has some words to say about these things in the Sermon on the Mount, where he is trying to describe what the follower of Christ will look like here on the earth as the kingdom moves and shifts and takes up space in their life. This was an important part of what he wanted the followers of Christ to know. Verse 33, you have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, Do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head. You can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Like this is, Jesus thought this was important enough to put it in the full sermon we have recorded that he spoke on a mountain for his followers to understand how to live before God. And he's just agreeing with the Old Testament. God said, look, uh, 
It's not a sin to not make a vow. It's not. But if you make a vow, you best keep that because those, those hot air words coming out your mouth, God cares about. Don't do things to impress. Sit silently and let the Lord speak. Often it is the person who has not been able to keep their promises that has to use such grand language to convince someone that they'll follow through, right? I, I swear to God, I'll do it. I swear. I swear I will. Come on, man. I swear. Swear. I swear on my mother's grave. My mother was a saint. I swear on her grave. I swear on my grandma's name. I swear. Come on, man. Come on, man. You know I'm good for it. Come on. Come on, man. You know I'm good for it. Everybody who talks like that, you know, is not good for it. <laughs> right? When Jesus paints for us in the Sermon on the Mount as a person not driven by promise-making, but they live in such a way that their words can be believed without all the extra. Mark of a Christ follower is that I can say yes, and you're going to know I mean yes, and I don't have to say, come on, man, I swear. Come on, come on, I swear. I swear, man, come on, I swear. The mark of a follower of Jesus is that we become people who keep our word. Proverbs 10.19 says this, Too much talk leads to sin. You ever met smooth talkers? This is why. Be sensible and keep your mouth closed. Keep your mouth shut. Interesting words. See, I love how James just echoes his brother's sentiment and be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. My guess is James probably learned that the hard way because, you know, you grow up with Jesus as an older brother. But after seeing Jesus' resurrection and coming to faith himself, my guess is he began to understand that Jesus knew what he was talking about. The antidote for empty vows is recognizing that God is big. The antidote to us stopping all of the talking and all of the proclaiming and all of the vow making is to understand how holy God is, how big he is, how powerful he is. And he is not just somebody we come strutting up into the presence of because on our own, we're dead if we do that. But because he has been kind and gracious and merciful and, and and all of his power come very close in Jesus. He's given us a way to approach him so that we can find mercy and grace when we need it the most. But we cannot, we cannot have, a, have, a, have an accurate view of, of silence until we see how big God is. Sometimes Isaiah's words, when he sees how big God is, the only thing he can say is, I'm done. I'm finished because I've seen God. There's nothing for me to say except how huge he is. Through his tough words on empty talk, the teacher in Ecclesiastes points to one of the highest forms of arrogance. And that would be to assume some kind of position thinking that I can control God by the vow I make to him. I make this vow, God does this. This is very dangerous ground to stand on. To believe that by making a vow, you can somehow control God to do what you want him to do is very dangerous ground to stand on. 
Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Luke that should shed some light on those that like to treat God as if he should be impressed by them. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this story. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you this, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Where the religious man was using all of his words, trying to impress God at the keeping of those vows, he was worse off than the tax collector. The tax collector made no vows. He simply made a confession. Who am I, God, that you would think of me? Vow less. Confess more. Vow less. Confess more. This is where the Christ follower lives because the one who kept the vow and finished the work is Jesus. I can't keep my vows. I don't keep my promises. He does. So I confess, Jesus, thanks for being a person of your word. Thanks for not quitting when it got hard. Thanks for not stopping when they punched you in the face. Thanks for not speaking up and defending yourself when they accused you of all these things. Thanks for taking the nails. Thanks for being put in a tomb. Thanks for raising from the dead. Because apart from that, I have nothing. My vows are empty. I know that my words are broken. The quicker we are to confess, the less likely we are to make grandiose vows. Prayer is not something or some way that we leverage with God to gain grace. Making promises to God does not make him look on you with greater favor than what Christ has already done. Stop trying to add to the blood of Christ. That's what we do. We try and add to it. Well, God, I promise I'll never do that or this again. Yes, you will, more than likely. Jesus, thank you that you didn't. Thank you that you haven't done those things and that you were qualified to be the perfect sacrifice to take away my sins. Vow less, confess more. It's really better for God to speak anyways. That's why he says he's God in heaven, we're here on earth. So let's let our words be few. Let's let our words be few. But what about money? In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 10, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Entourage. So what good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. Yes, more money, more problems. Gold diggers, leeches, sleepless nights. Money gone at death. All of these realities approached in Ecclesiastes. In verse 13, he says this, There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. 
When the market crashes and there's nothing left and you can't take those riches with you, what do you do? But then the teacher gets very specific and he gives some very realistic descriptors of people who chase job and money. In verse 17, throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Are you constantly any or all of those things? It might be time to take a step back and consider what you're chasing. If you constantly live in a state of frustration, discouragement, or anger, and by the looks of it in America, those levels are off the charts, my guess is Solomon's words are not just theory, but tested and found accurate. If frustration, anger, and discouragement seem to mark you, it may be time to take a step back and ask, what am I chasing? Wealth does not assure the happiness of a nation. Jobs don't guarantee a satisfied people. Finding our meaning or our purpose or identity in either of these things is like chasing the wind. But then the teacher takes a turn. And he says this in verse 18. Even so, I have noticed one thing at least, that it is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy our work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Caleb and Caleb, come here real quick. Well, actually, uh, Caleb, come here. I'm just going to have you hold this board. It's time to use the board again. All right, so come here. You just come stand right here. You might want to hold it with, like this, so your arms, there you go, good. All right, good. This good? Right here? Okay, good. All right, just making sure the marker works. So it helps me with pictures sometime to understand what it looks like with money and wealth. And if we take Jesus' teachings seriously in Matthew 6, he says to seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow, okay? For today has enough troubles of its own. So I'm not supposed to live in tomorrow, okay? And I can't live in the past. It's already happened. But God is the God of the present. He's with us. He's the God of the living. And so he's with us now. So here's what happens. Me, God. This is where we get to live, right here. But what happens with money and job is this. So we start to look back to the past. And you know what we do when we look back to the past when we consider money and job? We get filled with regret. Man, what could I have done? What should I have done differently? Oh, we'd be in such a better financial position if we had done this, or if I had said this, or I had thought this, or we had pursued this, and we live in regret. But see, it's not the end, because we're great at doing two things, not living here and then going to the future. And you know what awaits us in the future? Anxiety. We get anxious, right? Where's the money going to come from? What about the job? 
greener grass. There's a job promotion. I know what can I do. We start, we start rolling around out here and we get anxious. And you know the thing is, God is the God of the present. He's with us. So we have an opportunity to go, you know what, God? Um, look at you turning and everything. I didn't, even, I didn't even ask him to do that. Look at you thinking about people. You're so good. And God's like, no, I, I didn't ask you to live in the past. I didn't ask you to live in the future. But God, I'm scared about the future. God says, you know what? I'm already there. Why don't you just let me handle those things? We live in the past with regret. We live in the future with anxiety. But we can't live right here. It's because we're not listening to Jesus' words. We don't listen to him. We think we can manage things better than he can. And so we kind of... We just go, you know what, I'm just going to chew on my past a little bit. And then you end up devouring it and being filled with regret. And then you think about the future. And you're not just thinking about it. You're trying to live there. And the anxiety that it causes just is crushing. And the beautiful words found in Ecclesiastes is that the teacher said, God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. But it's not just the past. Thank you, Caleb. You can have a seat. Good job, Caleb. Yes, all right. Listen to verse 9 in Ecclesiastes 6. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. The power to enjoy is really what we're after got money, got jobs. We just want to be able to enjoy what we have. And when we look at America, I just don't know if we're good at that. I don't think we're good at enjoying what God has handed us because we're living in the future or we're living in the past and we only have the present. The Bible is filled with promises. Tomorrow is not one of them. So if you're living in a place not even guaranteed, what good does that do for you? Nothing. Solomon points to how we can actually enjoy what is handed to us under the sun. We don't let these things define us. We don't get lost in the past or in the future because we know he is there. In closing out chapter 6, Solomon says this, Everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. Fear God, fear God. Book ends to these chapters to know that he's taken care of the past, something that happened in history on a cross with a real person who lived, died, and rose from the dead, marked our future. Something that's already been done has marked us. So now, because of his presence in us, we get to live today open-handed. We talked about the difference between grasping at vapors and living as people with open hands. People that live with open hands receive everything that God does as a gift. Everything. So instead of making vows about what you'll do for God, thank him for the promises that we have in Christ. Instead of trying to get God to do good things for you by promising him you'll do good things for him, thank him that he has not demanded his people to try harder and do gooder. Instead of always talking, sit silent and let God speak. In Hebrews chapter 12 
since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. Fearing God means we have nothing else to fear. And I tell this a lot because Malachi had really, really taught me a lot about what it looked like to fear God. And when, when Malachi was younger, we would go to new places and he would stay behind my leg. Always. Always behind my leg. And then once he got comfortable with the room or where we were at, he would wander out and get comfortable. But the minute something changed, he would run back and be right behind me. That's what it means to live in the fear of God. To know that I fear not being around him. I fear not seeing him and losing his presence. I want to stay so close to him because everything else in this world, I don't have to fear behind my father. When I stand behind the father, I go, God, I'm scared of the future. Don't worry, I'm there. God, I regret the past. I already covered it. Man, I don't know how to do things. I'm God. I'll take care. I will be with you. These are the promises that we begin to get good at saying out loud, vowing less, confessing more. Instead of chasing earthly riches, thank God for the riches and blessings we have inherited by faith. If you don't see the gospel as riches, it's not God's fault. It's not. If we don't see the gospel as the most beautiful thing in the world, the problem is with our hearts. And so if you're sitting here going, Jason, I'm hearing you talk about riches. I don't see it that way. That's not God's fault. We are the ones who begin to dig and trip over truth. And Jesus confounds us and he confuses us. And we go, if his words really are life, we go looking. And the more we begin to dig, the more we begin to see that he is faithful to his vows. And his work finished something for us that we could not do on our own. I'm absolutely convinced that there are some of you here today that if you were completely honest, you would say, I've been running after money and career. I've even made promises to God to get him to shift things around in my life. And honestly, God's not really what I want. I want the shift. He's not what I want. This is why Jesus came announcing another way. That's where we're like, cool, the kingdom. But this is also why Jesus called us to repent. Boo. I don't like that word. I don't like the idea of repenting. No one does. You know why? It's because Jesus is announcing he's king and we're not. Nobody likes the idea of having to turn from the thought that they're not king. No one does. And the way that that happens is not by just getting rid of title of king in our own life. It actually begins by us seeing Jesus as a good king. See, in the world of the Christ follower, it's not just a removal of chasing money and chasing work. Something greater has to stir our reasoning behind that. And the more we sit with Jesus, the more we begin to understand that he's better than money. He's better than work. He's better than all the things that I'm chasing. He's defined me. He's covered me. He's hidden me. Those things, those successes or failures don't define me anymore. Jesus has alone become who I need and what I need most. As we close this morning in worship, right after Jesus was baptized and celebrated by his father, Mark gives us this description in Mark chapter 1. 
Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And the good news over and over and over in the New Testament is that there is right relationship through faith in Christ Jesus with God. Repentance is a turning. And often we think of repentance as this thing where I'm doing all these bad things and then I turn and I start doing all these good things, which is a part of it. What we do on the outside does begin to shift as we've placed our faith in Christ. But there is an inward turning that has to happen first. A heart turning that says, I'm not king. I don't know how to do life. Jesus, if what you're announcing is the kingdom and I don't have that kingdom, I want that kingdom. And what we call that in the life of the Christ follower is being born again. When, that's, when the Spirit of God pushes and calls us to believe that Jesus is who he is, there's this, this birth, this rebirth that happens by the Spirit. But then there's this gift given to the church called repentance. And repentance is this, you're, this door that you've walked in through being born again is now repentance. It's a life. Because you and I, we don't struggle with not chasing money and jobs after we give our life to Christ. Like everything's good. I'm handing my life to Jesus. I don't care about anything else anymore. No, you do. We do. We just have a new power over those temptations. And that is Jesus is greater, grander, bigger, and more than all the little things of this world I've been chasing. My sin nailed to the cross. A heart is challenged with God's kingdom and recognizes that we are not king. And therefore, where we've lived and what we've chased may not be the best thing for us. Repentance is not letting that unsettledness just be unsettledness. Repentance is the resolve to know if God's words are true, then I need him more than anything else. I need him more than I need a pay increase or the new job. Luke 12, Jesus says this, Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Jesus didn't come to point us to the way or to a path. He came to be the way. Life, wholeness, the ability to enjoy the things under the sun, none of that is possible without him. Only Christ dwelling in his people, guiding their hearts and minds and hands and eyes can bring the power to enjoy any of the things that God hands us. This morning, we close in our time with communion. And one of the beautiful things about communion is this bread and this juice that we take is a reminder that Jesus is the one who we actually go through to sit with the Father. All the temples in the Old Testament that we saw were a pointer to the final temple, Jesus. The one that we would enter into to sit and meet with God was Jesus. It's him. He is enough. He covers us. And so when we take this bread and we take this juice, the bread representing his body, the, the juice representing the blood of Christ, we're saying it's finished. We're declaring there ain't nothing I can add to. I, there is no vow that I can make. There is no job that I can chase better than what the cross of Christ has accomplished. I'm not going to add to your blood anymore, Jesus. Thank you for reminding me that I don't have to. Thank you for making it true that it is possible to peace with God through faith in Christ. That's what we're declaring when we take this bread and this juice. The act, it doesn't save us, 
but it reminds us that it is finished. No more vows because of the vow keeper. No more working because the work is done. Vow less, confess more. Why? Because it's in confession, healing comes. Why? Because in confession, God is faithful to forgive us all our sin. This morning, you will have an opportunity to take this meal. If you're still questioning and you're still wandering and you're still going, I don't know, and I've got thoughts, you don't have to take this meal. But if you are one who would say, I've placed my trust in Christ, we invite you, eat this meal together this morning. Father, we love you. And I just ask that in these moments that you would invite us to listen to your voice. Silence our own because you are truly God in heaven and we are here on earth, so we will let our words be few. God, would we please just stop telling you how to do your job? Would we stop begging you to, to change things and shift things in our lives so that we can get our idols better? Would we just say, God, thank you that you're crushing our idols because it is for our good that you do those things? Lord, help our unsettledness point us to being settled in you. It's in your name we pray.